0: where we left off last week. If I, if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to turn to Daniel chapter 4. And um, our, kind of the way we've been doing this, we've been kind of jumping into a story and just walking through it and kind of learning things as we go through the story of the lives of the people involved, very much like how our life works. We just kind of walk through it and discover things along the way. Uh, as we get into this this morning, I thought I'd just show you uh, that at our home, we're taking very seriously this da- Dancing with Lions" L- Dancing with Lyles, Dancing with Lions theme, and uh, we had some lions come to visit. I just was going to show you a couple of pictures here of Bennett and M- she's a shy lion. <laughs> um, before, you, before we jump into Daniel chapter 4, though, I want to walk through a couple scriptures, and I want to see if you can identify the theme that is in these. Psalm 31:23 says the Lord preserves the faithful, but the proud he pays back in full. Psalm 101:5 Whoever has haughty eyes and a proud heart, him I will not endure. Proverbs 6:16 6, There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. What's first on the list? Haughty eyes. Proverbs 16:5 The Lord detests all the proud of heart. Be sure of this, they will not go unpunished. Isaiah 2:12 The Lord Almighty has a day in store for all the proud and lofty. In James 4, 6, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. What do you think God's feelings are about pride? Not very good. It's not one of those scandalous sins that gets a lot of headline attention. In fact, I don't know when's the last time I preached a sermon on pride. And yet, if you read the, the Bible, you'll realize that this is just a small sampling of really the dozens and dozens and dozens of scriptures that talk about God's attitude toward pride. And it's always very negative. Scholars and theologians believe that really, if you get down to what the Bible is saying is that pride is the root of all other sin, that desire for control, that desire to go our own way, that desire for autonomy, to be a law unto ourselves, desire to kind of be our own God. That was what caused the downfall of Satan. That was what called the fall of the first human beings. Most often, that's what keeps people from turning their lives over to Christ and walking with Him. It is the root of my sin, and it is the root of your sin. C.S. Lewis, one of the wisest spiritual writers of the last hundred years, wrote these words. He said, pride is the utmost vice. Think about that. It's it's the worst sin, he said. It's the utmost vice because, he said, it is a complete anti-God state of mind. Think about that statement. Pride is an anti-God state of mind. What the Bible is saying, what C.S. Lewis is saying is there's maybe nothing in our world more damaging to one's soul than pride. Yet we live in a culture that sometimes elevates pride, at least tolerates it, but sometimes elevates it. We see it in athletes and people in, the, in, the, in our culture that are kind of held up in certain ways, that it's like it's a good thing at some level. And yet the writers of Scripture say very, very strong words about the danger of pride, that it is lethal to our relationship with God And nothing gets in the way of having the abundant life we're looking for more than pride. So we're going to explore the life of a guy in Daniel chapter 4 and kind of how he came to grips with this idea of pride. Daniel 4, starting in verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar, to the peoples, nations, and men of every language who live in all the world, may you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. You've gotten gotten to know Nebuchadnezzar if you've been around for this series for the last few weeks. Here's a guy who's um, a very successful guy. He's really at the peak of his his culture and of really human existence. And he's going to share his story with you. Sometimes we have a story time during our services where somebody comes up and shares like their testimony, and it's kind of what he's going to do. He's going to share his story. Just to review about who this guy was, he was the main ruler of the main dynasty of the Babylonian kingdom, which was at the time the world power. So he's the most powerful person in the most powerful kingdom of the world. He was a great general. He was a great builder. His father actually destroyed Assyria, which had been the kind of the world power and then he takes over for his father. He reigns for 43 years and has tremendous success. Everything he does works. And he built all kinds of amazing stuff, which was uh, remarkable pre- because it was in a time where they didn't have big caterpillar tractors and all kinds of things like that. Built it just on human strength. Built amazing things. Just a couple pictures I want to show you. By the way, if you haven't noticed, there's a potter on the stage. We're going to get to that in a moment. So just hang on there. Um, here's a picture of an artist's rendition of what Babylon look like based on archaeological ruins, the Euphrates River ran through the middle of this capital city. It actually, the the nation encompassed hundreds of miles, but that's the capital city. You can see the wall out there in the distance. Another picture here will show you, and and I'm just going to describe this wall. The wall was approximately 56 miles long. If you walked around it, it was 100 feet high. Uh, with sometimes there'd be four, more, and some places even higher. There were towers, 450 feet tall, supposedly. It was wide enough you could turn a four horse chariot around completely in, on top and go the other direction. It was an amazing place. There's a gate, uh, and here's another shot of the interior gates. These are based on the archaeological record that we have. Um, also, one of the ma- things he was most famous for building was these things called the Hanging Gardens, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. We're going to rattle through some pictures as I describe them. Um, they were these lavish, beautiful uh, gardens that were built. They were watered with some kind of I- ancient hydraulic pump system. He built these for one of his wives who was from a very lush area and was uh, homesick because where they lived in this, was somewhat desert-like. And so he built this, these palaces and created this very green, lush city in the mi- enormous city, in the middle of um, this desert area, he built palaces, he built temples, he built streets that were paved, smooth, so you could drive chariots on them very easily. There was he built secondary walls, he built moats, he built canals, he built golden statues, placed them all over the city. Um, there's a picture of him coming up on a coin. Um, this is what he would have lo- looked like. This is actually a, a coin that was excavated, and his picture is on it. You can tell he's a striking guy. Um, but Nebuchadnezzar achieved really the good life. He was successful, he was wealthy, he was powerful, he was influential, he was interviewed regularly on Good Morning Babylon. He had no problems in his life, and yet he did have a problem. Verse 5, I had a dream that made me afraid, he says. As I was lying in my bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So I commanded all the wise men of Babylon be brought to me to interpret the dream for me. When the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners came, I told them the dream, but they could not interpret it for me. Finally, Daniel came into my presence and told him, I told him the dream. He is called Belteshazzar after the name of my God. The spirit of the holy gods is in him. That, that's significant because if you recall earlier on in the series, we talked about how Daniel, E-L, is the, that's the name of his God, the Yahweh uh, or Elohim. And this king changes his name so it's not named after the Hebrew God. He's named after the Babylonian God. Verse 9, I said, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and no mystery is too difficult for you. Here's my dream, interpret it for me. And then he tells them the dream. We're going to go over that in a minute. Pick up verse 18. This is the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now, Belteshazzar, tell me what it means for none of of the wise men of my kingdom can interpret it for me, but you can because the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, was greatly perplexed for a time, and his thoughts terrified him. So the king said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. Daniel kind of steps back, and this dream is terrifying for him. It's very scary. And if you've been through the series, you'll see that uh, Daniel's put his life on the line over and over again. It seems like nothing really scares him. So what scares him so much about this dream? Well, we're going to find out that this dream is a picture of the coming judgment, of the pain that God is going to bring on Nebuchadnezzar. And David, David, Daniel is concerned for Nebuchadnezzar because he's grown close to him, and he has a heart for him, and we've grown to see that he really wants Nebuchadnezzar to turn his life over to the one true God. And so he's concerned for what's going to happen to my friend. Who else, though, do you think Daniel may be concerned about? Himself. We've, heard, we've seen in this series how Nebuchadnezzar is not a guy that takes bad news well. He doesn't like to be disappointed. There's a recurring refrain that seems to happen over and over and over in this book. Whenever somebody comes and lets him down, the refrain is this, cut him into pieces and burn their houses to the ground. So he's not a guy that is tolerant of, like, issues and people confronting him. So Daniel knows, I'm going to give this guy some really seriously bad news, and this may be the last thing I ever say. But here's what's significant about this. Nebuchadnezzar recognizes that in Daniel, he has a trusted spiritual friend who will say to him a hard truth, just like in the drama you saw expressed. And he will do it in grace and love. Sometimes the most loving thing that you and I can do is speak hard truth to those that we are close to. Now, we need to, we need to have a relationship. It needs to be done in grace and love. We need to be invited to do it. He, he invited, and we don't just walk around to people we don't know and speak truth into their life. That doesn't work. But we need to be willing. And Christianity doesn't mean just being nice. Sometimes it means speaking hard truth. Do you have anybody in your life, like a Daniel, who will speak hard truth to you, that you ask them, that you offer them the opportunity to speak truth to you? Keep going. bethel answered, My Lord, if only, the king, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries... Then he starts to describe the dream. The tree you saw, which grew large and strong, with its top touching the sky, visible to the whole earth, with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, providing food for all, giving shelter to the beasts of the field, having nesting places in its branches for the birds of the air. You, O king, are that tree. You have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky, and your dominion extends to the distant parts of the earth. In other words, you are the most powerful guy on the planet right now, and your kingdom is the most powerful kingdom. That's a significant thing. Verse 23, you, O king, saw a messenger, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump bound with iron and bronze in the grass of the field. While its roots remain in the ground, let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live like the wild animals until seven times pass by for him. This is the interpretation, O king. This is the decree the Most High has issued against my lord, the king. You will be driven away from people and will live with wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times, we're not sure what seven times is, seven months, seven seasons, seven years, we're not sure. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge, until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. In other words, that this isn't your deal, that God has put you here. He's put you here for a purpose. Verse 26, the command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. See, Nebuchadnezzar's life was full of greatness and power and majesty and glory. He was providing for people. People were dependent on him. He governed them. He ruled them. He was in charge, but he had no sense of accountability, no sense of responsibility ultimately before God, no sense that God maybe put me here for some kind of ultimate purpose and reason, that everything I have, the wealth, the influence, the power, even my very breath, is a gift from God. A story I came across this week about a CEO who uh, went on vacation with his wife, and they were going to go visit the, the area where his wife grew up, uh, kind of in, in the back in the Midwest. And so he's a CEO of a multinational corporation. They're driving along. They decide to get gas in the town that she grew up. And they pull over, and she goes in to pay. And she notices, he notices in the car that she's having this very animated discussion with the gas station attendant inside the gas station. She comes back out, sits down in the car. They drive away. He says, what was that all about? He says, well, actually, that, the guy in there that works there, he was uh, my old boyfriend. We dated all the way through high school, you know, really close. And kind of driving along, real quiet again for a long time, the husband's thinking. And then he says, I bet you're thinking how glad you are that you married the CEO of a multinational corporation and uh, as opposed to a gas station attendant. To which she replies, actually, I was thinking to myself, if I'd married him, he'd be the CEO of a multinational corporation and you'd be a gas station attendant. See, sometimes we can think that everything in our life we've done, we've created, it's all about us. But we've got to be careful not to live with the illusion that we are in control. All we have are gifts from God. We need to be grateful every day. One of the ways to kind of check yourself on this is how do you talk about those things in your life? Is it my career, my money, my house, my family, my future, my retirement? Or is this underlying sense that it's all God's, that it's stewardship, not ownership? So God is trying to get Nebuchadnezzar's attention. And he gives them his dream, and he sends Daniel to interpret the dream. This is God's plan A. This is always God's plan A, and that is this, truth in love. That is always the way God wants to deal with us in the struggles in our life. It's truth and love, always. He wants to get our attention, communicate maybe an area in our life that's going down the wrong kind of a path, and how we can steer it back to the direction. Here's a question for you. Is God trying to get your attention? If he is, you must allow him to break through and listen to the truth he has for you. Listen to a person that he puts in your life that's maybe speaking truth in love, like Daniel. And so Daniel gives him the rest of kind of the, the advice here. Verse 27, Therefore, O king, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right. There's the personal change. And your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. There's your communal responsibility. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. See, ultimately, the sin that is most destructive to our relationship with God is pride. The Scripture writers have identified this. C.S. Lewis identified this. Others have. And it is most clearly seen in serving of the self versus caring for the least of these. So a up for the time this morning, I want you to just kind of wrestle with this. Between you and God, on your own, in your own heart, if you, if you look at these in terms of like scales of your life, on one side it is self, And the other side is caring for others, particularly the least of these. Where is the bulk of your energy, your time, your resources spent? Self or others? See, Nebuchadnezzar was a guy who built this amazing kingdom, but he built it on the backs of foreign people that he was oppressing. He was hard, he was cruel, he was violent. And so Daniel says, you know, you need to change, and it's one thing to say, okay, I'm going to become a more humble person, but you can't just theoretically say that. You're going to have to live that out. You're going to have to make a choice to begin to serve people, self or others. See, the mark of a follower of God always has been and always will be ultimately about being a servant. In the Old Testament, there's all kinds of rules, all kinds of regulations, all kinds of religious stuff to do, but God said, if you really want to boil it down to what righteousness really is... Do you serve, you care for widows and orphans, people in need, people in crisis? Jesus said, I didn't come to be served, even though I'm God in human flesh, but to serve, and all my followers should carry as their fundamental identity a servant. Serve, 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 serve. That's all you see over and over, that we give up our rights, give up ourselves, give up our agenda, and we serve. And we serve kids, and we serve students, we serve people in crisis, and behind the scenes, we serve those that cannot serve themselves. The best way to destroy the root of pride in your heart and mind is to serve. So how are you doing at this? How are you doing at being others focused? Just between you and God. Most of us don't think of ourselves as arrogant people, proud people. But as I was thinking about this a lot this week, it became clear how insidious and how ugly this, this pride thing is in our hearts how I can be driving in traffic and somebody cuts me off, how I can be at the grocery store and it's taking longer than I thought, how I can be on the phone with somebody, you know, trying to accomplish something or something in the office and it's taking longer than I think it should, and how I can get frustrated and get angry and give dirty looks and be curt with people, which what really what that's communicating is my agenda and my time and my energy is way more important than yours. And if you're in my way at all or, you know, stopping that up at all, then we need to get past that because my agenda is that important. That's Pride. If somebody speaks truth to and love to you, do you receive it humbly or is there defensiveness and anger? That's pride. See, pride shows up in all kinds of ugly kind of bubble under the surface ways. The reason that God is so opposed to pride is because pride is the opposite of love. Pride is the opposite of grace. Pride is the opposite of community. It violates all that God longs for. It violates all that God is. The Bible says God is love. And the Bible says, love is patient and love is kind. It is not proud. It violates who he is. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't get it. The plan A thing doesn't work. Daniel comes in, hears the truth in love, and it just doesn't work. Verse 29, 12 months later, 12 months, I want you to notice that. It wasn't like God came down on him the next day. God is patient. God wants us to get plan A. As the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, I want you to notice the paragon of humility he's become. Is this not the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? He's just oozing humility. Verse 31, the words were still on his lips when a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from the people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and ate grass like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. Here's a guy who was in the highest high. He was the leader of the world power, and now he's at the lowest low. How do you think the press in Babylon handled this? I mean, our press goes crazy, you know, Lewinsky or Enron, when people in high places fall down. He is the highest high, and he's gone to the lowest low. You wonder as he's living as an animal, homeless, if he ever thought thinks to himself, you know, I wish I had done more to care for the poor now that I'm one of them. But he is low. He's lost everything. He has, in the vernacular of our culture today, he has hit rock bottom. See, God really desires plan A to work. But if it doesn't, God loves us enough to go to plan B. And plan B is pain or discipline. Now, not all pain is from God. Life is hard, and sometimes life just hurts. But we must understand that God, as a loving father, will use discipline, will use pain to get our attention, just like we do with our children. We all do this. With our children, a loving parent would love. To, to work with truth, to, to deal with truth and love, to use reason with our children, but does that always work? Those of you who have kids? Does reasoning with your children? Does using the truth and love method always work with your children? No. We have a word for people who always use the truth and love method and never use anything else with their children. Stupid. A truly loving parent knows that sometimes discipline is required to get our children, uh, children's attention and to shape them and move, move them and mold them into, into the kinds of kids we think and God thinks they need to be. If we have an area in our life that we are not letting God be God, God will try to get our attention. He will use the truth and love thing. He'll bring spiritual friends into our life to talk to us. But if we keep ignoring it, we keep pushing it aside, we keep not listening, God will eventually go from plan A to plan B. And that leads us to this image of pottery. And we have Jan Hedberg up here with us. She's a member of our congregation. Would you welcome her? This image of the pottery and the potter uh, is one that's actually used throughout Scripture, Old and New Testament. But here's a main passage I want us to look at in Jeremiah. This is the word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Go down to the potter's house, and there I will give you my message. So I went down to the potter's house, and I saw him working at the wheel. But the pot he was shaping from the clay was marred in his hands. It was defective. It had some kind of flaw. So the potter formed it into another pot, shaping it as it seemed best to him. Then the word of the Lord came to me. O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter does, declares the Lord, like clay in the hand of a potter, so you are in my hand. So in this picture, this is kind of a metaphor for the Scripture, Um, the clay is us and Jan would be God, so you can enjoy this moment. (laughs) And I've had a little experience with pottery because I've played with Play-Doh with my kids, but I'm going to ask her just a couple questions as she's working here this morning. Um, Have you ever worked on something, uh, a pot or a jar or whatever, you've been working on something that uh, as you worked on it, uh, a, a flaw developed? Oh, yeah, quite often. Okay. And as you're doing that, uh, if, you, if you recognize the flaw is significant enough that we'll, it will hamper uh, the pot or the jar from fulfilling the purpose that you have for it, what do you do at that, at that time? Well, usually I'll cut it off the potter's wheel, and then I'll let it sit and dry a little bit, rework it, and then make another pot out of it. Excellent. So it's never a total loss. All right. Excellent. Well, thanks. Would you thank her? <laughs> See, uh, it'd be easier for the potter when there's a when there's a default, a, a defect, a, a flaw in the um, the pot, just to go well. You know, it's a small thing. It's not a big deal, and it may not fully fulfill the purpose I have for that. But that's okay. Just like it's easier sometimes for a parent to overlook the flaws we see in our kids. But the reality is, a loving potter says, you "Know what? This has a unique purpose. I'm making this for." and if this gets in the way of it fulfilling a purpose, I need to start over. I need to take it back to the wheel. I need to remold it, reshape it, just like we do with kids, even though it's harder sometimes. If we see that issue, we need to deal with it. And a loving father says, I love you too much, a loving heavenly father, says I love you too much to see these flaws, these issues, particularly this thing of pride. It's going to get in the way of you becoming who I want you to be. And So if I have to put you on the wheel and remold and reshape and bring a little pain, I will do that. The book of Ephesians says that you and I are God's masterpiece, his workmanship, his masterpiece. God is shaping you and I into something very special and has a very unique purpose. God wants you to be the best you you can be. So he loves you too much to let your flaws and my flaws get in the way of that. So pick up the story again. Verse 34. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raise my eyes toward heaven. I want you to notice, where does he look? He looks up. And my sanity was restored, then I praised the Most High. I want you to notice all this affirming. He praised the Most High. I honored and glorified Him who lives forever. After he's driven him out, he praises God for all this stuff. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of earth are regarded as nothing. He does does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out, and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. I want you to notice that when when we honor God, when we submit to the wheel, the life that he gives us is greater than the life that we had. Now, I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify, again, the honoring God, the King of heaven, because everything he does is right, and all his ways are just, this last sentence, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. So the prodigal turns, turns back. This guy who was very far from God, who was going his own way, doing his own thing, it was his life, he was in control, God has him spend some time on the potter's wheel, getting remolded, reshaped, and after a while, he turns. And he comes back to God and he finds this loving father who's waiting for him, who accepts him and gives him a better life than he ever dreamed possible. I don't know where you are in your life. Maybe you've messed up. Maybe you've messed up quite a lot. Maybe for a long time. Maybe you're paying the price for some of those mistakes. Maybe you've been wrestling with some behaviors or temptations or struggles in your life. Maybe a relationship that is not what it should be. Maybe stress and tension about the future. Maybe it's attitudinal issues like anger or things like that. Maybe you've hurt someone or betrayed someone. Maybe you're involved like Nebuchadnezzar was in building your own kingdom, and it's really all about you and money, success, and work, and retirement, but it's my, 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 I, 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 all about this empire, this little empire that I can build. Maybe you have done that, and you've fallen on your face. Things have fallen apart. In whatever way that you've hit bottom, and we all hit bottom in one way or another in different times in our life, let me encourage you when you're in that moment to do what Nebuchadnezzar did and look up. Because there you'll find your last, best, and only hope. You'll find a God who loves you, and He will use even your Babylon, even those places in life that haven't worked out the way you hoped, even your pain, to shape you into this masterpiece that He's working on. I wanted you to note that over and over he says, you know, I praise and honor honor and glorify God. He says that several times because to me that was interesting. He's not mad. He's not angry. He's not bitter about this this horrible season of his life he went through. He he didn't feel like he wasted, you know, look at all the years I wasted. You don't get any of that. There's no sense of humiliation, no sense of being embarrassed, no sense of despair or regret. See, he realizes that nothing is wasted on the potter's wheel. Nothing is wasted in the hands of the potter. I talk to people all the time who have hit bottom in one way or another in their life. And then they turn and they look up and they come back to God. And they say things like, you know what, I don't regret one minute I spent down there in the valley. It wasn't easy. I wouldn't want to go through it again. But it got me where I am and I'm in a far better place than I was. God is so good. Maybe you've been on the wheel in one way or another. There's really only one solution to the wheel, and that is surrender. Surrender to God's love. Give up the illusion of power, of control, that it's your life, that you're you're the man, that you're God. You are not God, but you can know God. He'll be your friend. One more thing about Nebuchadnezzar, and I found this very interesting. Of all the things that this guy made, he was... Potentially one of the greatest leaders, political, military, uh, that had ever come at that point in the world history. One of the greatest builders. All the things he built, all the con- things he, you know, his empire, all the f- structures he built, t- temples, palaces, walls, all the uh, the kingdoms he conquered, all the stuff that he has done, all the things he produced, nothing is left. His kingdom is gone, his dynasty is gone, you know, his military conquests don't matter anymore, the... Um, There's a few ruins left over, but nothing of significance. Nothing that he did is left over except one thing, and that is his story. Because his story is recorded here for us. See, the only thing that lasts in my life and yours is our story. So let me ask you, what is your story going to say? Nebuchadnezzar's story was a story of a person who was disgraced, who lost everything, who went insane and became homeless, Honestly, I'm not sure I'd want that spread around if that was my story. But Nebuchadnezzar writes his story. It says for generations, for every culture, for thousands of years in multiple languages to read his story, to learn from him, to learn of a God who worked in his life to make him into a masterpiece and will work in others. And he's come to this place in life where it really doesn't matter what other people think of him, which is a tremendous sign of humility. Humility. He only wants all the glory and all the attention to go to God. And he says, I'm just a lump of clay, just a cracked pot. But if God can use me to influence others, then that's great. Use my story. And all I am and all you are are a little lump of clay. But when shaped by the hands of the master potter, we can be made in something of remarkable beauty, remarkable impact, remarkable purpose. So what about you? What is your story going to say? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, uh, I thank you for Daniel and uh, his willingness to speak truth. And we all need people in our lives that are willing to do that. I also thank you for Nebuchadnezzar and the courage he had to, uh, to share with every culture, every nation, for generations, for thousands of years, not his successes, but his failures and how God shaped him through those times of pain into the person that he wanted him to be. God, we're a lot of people in this room are on the wheel in different ways or another. And we resist and we fight and we push and we hold on and we try to be in control and you're trying to mold us and shape us. God, give us a heart of surrender. Give us the courage to surrender. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In the busyness of our lives and the hecticness of our schedules, we don't often get the time to um, process with God as we should, and so we wanted to create a moment for you to do that this morning. As you can see, there are three crosses up front, and if I can can invite you to take that little red card out of your bulletin, (coughs) and now is the time you can use that. We want to invite you to do kind of a spiritual exercise of surrender this morning. I don't know where you need to surrender. Perhaps some of you need to surrender your life, your whole life. Maybe you've been in, or in and around church, some in your life. Maybe um, you believe in God. Most people do. You believe in God, and you've done the religion thing. But truth be told, you really don't have a relationship with God. You've really never opened your heart up to Him fully. And you need to write your name on this card and come up to the cross and say, God, I'm going to give you my life. I don't want to live like Nebuchadnezzar, kind of far from you. I'm not going to be perfect. I'm going to make mistakes, but I want to turn my life over to you. I want to invite you into my heart. Maybe others of us need to be like Nebuchadnezzar. We need to, we need to surrender that, that career thing, that success thing, that money thing. Uh, that's, that's what our life is dominated by, our retirement and all that kind of stuff. And We just got to realize, you know what? God has given me the skills I have. God has given me the job. God has given me breath. He could take it away at any moment. I better be careful about this, and I better honor him with what I have. I'm going to surrender that. Maybe for others it's a marriage. The marriage has been all about how this person is not meeting my needs as opposed to how can I meet their needs. Maybe you need to surrender a person. Maybe there's a person in your life that's making destructive or dangerous life choices, and you worry about them, and God is saying, here's what's going to need to happen. I'm going to need to take them to the wheel, and I'm going to need to take them through some pain, Will you trust me enough with that person you love? Maybe, um, maybe for some of us, it's with our, our time and our talents. You know, we talk about serving like we have this morning, and that's the mark of a follower of Christ is serving, and you look at the scales, and you say, you know what, the scales is I'm serving myself a lot more than I'm serving other people, and maybe I serve my family a little bit, maybe I serve some people at work a little bit, but ultimately, a lot more serving goes into serving myself but I'm not sure I have the time and I'm not sure I have the energy to serve the way I need to serve, to serve kids or students or serve people behind the scenes, whatever it would be. And we need to put those things, time and talents and serving on the card and say, God, I will serve and I trust that if I sacrifice some time here and there, that you will make it work, that you will bless that. Maybe there's a relationship you're in and it's not, you know, going a God-honoring direction. And you need to say, I'm willing to surrender this for you, God. I want this relationship to be the most important relationship, more important than the other one. I don't know where you are in your, sur- your surrender thing. But we want to give you an opportunity to go through an exercise. While the pottery is still going, you can kind of use that image. We're going to sing a song. Uh, we're going to play a song for you. We want to give you the space to just open your hearts to God and say, God, will you speak some truth in love to me? I'm listening. I'm going to be open to what you have to say. And then we invite you to write what you feel God is speaking to you on your hearts, where you maybe need to surrender, where some things of pride are getting in the way of your life with Him and the life of the masterpiece He's trying to make you to be. And then if you feel comfortable doing this, and you don't have to do this, we don't want you to feel pressure, but if you feel comfortable doing this, we invite you to come up to the cross. And there are some bowls of pins. We invite you to pin your surrendered card to the cross. See, the cross is the ultimate sign of surrender. If there's anybody who didn't need to be, to be served, or anybody who didn't need to serve but to be served, it was Jesus, God in human flesh. And yet he chose to come as a servant and humbled himself and said, not only will I serve, but I will die this horrific death for you. And now I ask you, are you willing in view of my sacrifice To re surrender yourself. I've surrendered myself to you. Will you surrender yourself over to me and trust me with your life? So I ask you pray and open your heart up to God and see where He leads you and go through this practice of surrender.